Friends, the Gospel reading is from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Listen for God's word. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private, away from the crowd, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of the Lord. On January 1st, 1942, the American music legend Woody Guthrie jotted down 33 New Year's resolutions. Adorned by doodles, it's an eclectic list. Number one, work more and better. Number two, work by a schedule. Seven, drink very scant, if any. Eight, write a song a day. Nine, wear clean clothes. Look good. Down the list it goes. Learn people better. Don't get lonesome. Keep hoping machine running. Dream good. Make up your mind. Wake up and fight. His may be more unusual, but most of us and most churches make resolutions either formally or informally on a regular basis. If we just get the right list and follow it, if we just adopt the appropriate strategy, we think everything in our life will fit together. If only we get the perfect ministry to-do list, then scores of new people will come. Those who've left will return in droves. Budgets will double. Spirits will rise. All the church has to do is have a really good list of resolutions because we all know how well New Year's resolutions work out every year. (laughs) According to surveys, only 8% of us keep that New Year's resolution to go to the gym beyond Groundhog's Day. The shame that comes from these internal promises and failures is real. David Brooks has written that in our shame culture, we know that we are good or bad by what the community says about us. As churches are facing challenges and struggles with decline and self-doubt all over our culture, what our culture thinks of us 
has become ever more urgent. In our Facebook, Instagram world, the desire to be praised by those who are looking at us is intense. People dread being exiled or shamed for a lack of vitality. Moral life, Brooks writes, is not built on the continuum anymore of right and wrong. It's built on the continuum of are you in or not. The modern shame culture allegedly values tolerance and inclusion, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who don't fit in. For weeks after 28-year-old Carrie O'Brien's boyfriend ended their relationship, Carrie would joke with her friends, I got dumped, and then I realized every day I was choosing my lunch place by where I could get away with a good cry. That led her to start a website, the NYC Crying Guide, a guide to the best places in New York City to cry in public. Immediately, people flooded it with recommendations. Good places to cry, just in case you're in New York. The Build-A-Bear Workshop on Fifth Avenue. (laughs) The comment was, if you want to be treated as a real person, despite your overflowing tears, head there immediately. The ATM lobby at the Bank of America branch on 5th Avenue and 48th Street. The comment, a very average, basic, no frills place to cry. And the subway, especially the 7 train. It's a crier's dream, they say. I cry on this subway at least once a day. Now, caution, you may want to avoid the AT&T store near Bryant Park when you're feeling on the brink of tears. The comment... Let's just say AT&T, I will not be returning to you to cry anytime soon. (laughs) This list goes on and on. And you know what's notable on this expansive list? Not one church is mentioned. You get a -A Build-A-Bear workshop. You get a subway. You get an ATM lobby. But there is not one community of faith listed when folks are at points of needing to express their vulnerability. Jesus thrived in ministry and died violently for the same reason. He touched the real things that drive human life. Sam Wells has noted that there are three quests that pervade our culture and they are so into what we are and who we are and what we do, we don't even notice them. There's the quest for achievement. Something lasting in a temporal world. This is a quest for perfection. The fastest speed, the largest company, the best church. Also the quest for experience. A feeling, emotion, texture, touch, truth. Something that sends people to try yoga or cliff diving or others on a lifelong search that seems forever elusive. And then there's the quest for security. An alarm system, the dream of a stable family life, a larger investment balance, an impressive resume, anything that tries to say nothing can go wrong now. What achievement, experience, and security have in common is that in our world they're ultimately unattainable and perpetually vulnerable. They are the fruits of our contemporary life together, which is why these two healings in Mark 7 are so hard for us in our modern eyes and modern ears to comprehend. What were the driving concerns in Jesus' time? 
there was survival. First century life was precarious. Food supply was never reliable. Disease was much less treatable. Violent death was a perpetual danger. Fertility was fragile. And being childless meant having no retirement or sickness plan. A second quest in Jesus' time was for social coherence. We take for granted the rule of law, welfare, education, hospitals. None of those existed in the first century. Those who couldn't assert their power, meaning almost everyone except wealthy adult males, were constantly vulnerable. The third quest in Jesus' time was for identity. Israel was marked by God's story of its liberation from Egypt, of its exile and its return. At the center of this, it was God's steadfast love. That was their identity. Every day, every day, Jesus' ministry engaged people's need for survival and coherence and identity. And Jesus, as he went through his ministry, all through the Gospels, kept running up against taboos uh, surrounding survival and coherence and identity, about what food to eat and who you can eat with, about keeping free of foreigners, anybody not in your tribe, about maintaining boundaries around our bodies and our families and around death. Fundamentally, They were all about keeping Israel clean and pure, pure to avoid disease, pure to be special, pure to be good. The phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness, is not in Scripture. But it sure was in the minds of those who thought then and think now that by being clean, we get God's favor. And then Jesus arrives. Watch Jesus' engagement in the stories in today's text. A girl has a demon, unclean. She's a Gentile, unclean. Her mother touches Jesus' feet, unclean. They talk about sharing food, unclean, and dogs, unclean. Then Jesus meets another Gentile, again unclean, who's got multiple disabilities, unclean. Jesus spits, unclean. He puts his fingers in the man's ears, unclean. He touches the man's tongue, unclean. In every detail, Jesus challenges the conventional way of his time of assuring salvation by being pure before God. Of course, we can be lured you know, to think in our culture, we're so much more advanced, we don't have taboos. Uh, I mean, really? What are tabloid headlines except a 21st century version of taboos? We're focused on threats from those different from us, sometimes for very good reasons. And what is political correctness if not a series of modern taboos. Churches, every church I've ever been in, has purity codes and taboos. Churches have building taboos, money taboos, codes about staffing, codes about the kitchen. And so shameful, we'll never talk about it in public, public codes. What Jesus was saying was that no follower of Jesus 
can become clean by expelling the stranger, the different, the weak, the outsider. No follower of God can be be clean by trying to be, well, clean. Any more than the church in the 21st century can have vitality and purpose by just having the sharpest resolutions, the shiniest pastors, the shiniest congregation, the best building, the most strategic location, or the best mission statement. In Jesus' time, faith communities were struggling for identity and security and a way forward. And what does Jesus do in the face of all that? He doesn't just break the taboos. Jesus becomes every one of these taboos, including the taboo of being crucified outside the gates like a foreigner. Jesus becomes fundamentally, utterly unclean by the codes of his day, and he invites the church, he invites us to act like he acted and to live like he lived. In place of sacrifice, he brings forgiveness that makes enemy of friends, opening the future that's bigger than the past. In the place of obsession with security that we have to manufacture ourselves, Jesus invites us into risk-taking love from God and with the promise that we will be God's companions forever. In the place of rituals around uncleanness that get updated in every generation, he gives us healing to which the painful and the paralyzing become wisdom and God's wholeness. In the, in the place of constraints around what we can share, Jesus gathers a table in which sinner and Gentile, unclean and dirty, shameless and disgraced, the ugly and the disfigured, and everybody else is invited to gather together. One of the principal things Jesus does, especially in the Gospel of Mark, is expose all our taboos. Jesus does not meet us in the striving for success or in a well-crafted strategic plan. Jesus meets us exposing our taboos. He delves into our fears. Jesus messes with our assumptions and our expectations and our certainty. That's why he was killed. And that's why he'd be killed again today if he came to our carefully cleansed and arranged world. Salvation, it's not about keeping the purity codes and the church being orderly. It's about God having a love so passionate it's prepared to go to all the places of shame and horror and exclusion in order to come face to face with us. God goes there so we can meet God. And it's about our willing to make that same journey as individual Christians and as a church into the dirty and into the disgraceful and into the disreputable to come face to face with God and face to face with our neighbor. Out of this sewage heap of our horror and our shame and our exclusion, Jesus creates the body of Christ 
in which fears are faced and hurts are healed and wrongs are righted and death is dismantled and love is enthroned. This is what Jesus was doing with his whole life and ministry. This is what Jesus is doing today in every place of ministry, willing to face God's messy, messy future with joy. After President Kennedy was assassinated, a member of a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, called the pastor and suggested that one thing that church might do to partially redeem this horrible tragedy would be to provide Marina Oswald an opportunity to improve her English. The widow of the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, was Russian by birth, had been in this country for a very short time, uh, and as, given what had happened, since Lee Harvey Oswald was dead, she was the recipient of all the anger and all the hatred because of her husband's deeds. To make a very long story short, with the cooperation of the, of the FBI and others, Marina Oswald went to Ann Arbor, slipping in at night by train as reporters waited mawkishly at the airport. She lived with a modest family who took seriously its devotion to Jesus Christ and its love of God's people. The church and the university, as the word got out, were pressed, and finally they issued a small press release, and then the mail just started cascading in. Some were hot to point out how unpatriotic this action was. Others called the church foolish and misguided and stupid and un-American. Still others suggested that this was a profoundly unwise action, a stain on our honored faith, one letter said. One woman wrote and called it unfair. I have been a member of a church for 40 years, she wrote, and in that time, all the church has done for me, I could write on the back of this postage stamp. Yet you do this for the wife of that monster. The pastor and the elders of that church undertook to answer every letter personally, no matter how harsh. In every case, in every letter, their response was exactly the same. The one thing that you have not shown us, they wrote, is that what we have done is unlike Jesus Christ. As we embark on a new year in our life together as a congregation, I think this text can help us discover anew that there is no eight-point agenda for how to be an effective 21st century congregation. There's no prepackaged new resolutions that we can get up on the screen with some doodles that'll get us to our future. Instead, the Jesus we encounter here in this text is calling everyone, everyone in here, everyone out in the world that will hear Jesus' voice to experience the grace of God that Jesus embodied and died for. The messier, the better. In that experience, messy lives, messy ministry, I got to tell you, that's where grace lives. The more ragged it feels, it is probably close to God's heart. As I have come to know you in the last year, 
I know of your abundant faithfulness. I know of your generous grace. I know the intentional joy that is in this room. We are more than ready. Friends, we are more than ready for God's Spirit to lead us into those places no church goes without the Spirit's push. God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is calling us, as God has always called the church, to be prodigious, to be reckless, to be overflowing in sharing God's grace and love and helping one another along the way to be courageous in breaking taboos, in getting dirty, in service of vital, life-saving ministry. Which, as it turns out, is the only resolution any church ever needs to follow Jesus into God's future. Thanks be to God. Amen.